Uh, we'll hear argument this morning at number 93-1504, the Celotex Corporation versus Benny Edwards. Uh, Mr. Warren. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. At issue in this case is whether the bankruptcy court presiding over the Celotex Chapter 11 case had jurisdiction to enter an interim stay of execution on supersedious bonds by judgment creditors of Celotex. That stay restrained the Edwards from collecting their judgment against Celotex, which was largely for punitive damages, from Northbrook, the surety on the supersedious bond posted on for the benefit of Celotex uh, for the benefit of the Edwards. The case arises out of the Edwards' admitted collateral attack on the bankruptcy court stay order when they requested under Rule 65.1 that the district court in Texas, which had originally presided over their personal injury claim against Celotex, grant them permission to enforce the supersedious bond against Northbrook, notwithstanding the bankruptcy court's stay order. At the time Celotex filed its bankruptcy petition, it had posted similar supersedious bonds in over 100 separate appeals, using $70 million of assets to secure its obligations to the sureties. Celotex was defending over 100,000 personal injury and wrongful death cases, all of which are the result of the same conduct by a predecessor that had merged into Celotex, which was the same basis for the claims of the Edwards. These cases arise from exposure to asbestos-containing products uh, that were manufactured by Philip Carey Corporation, a corporation that was merged into Celotex in the early 1970s. Over the objections of Celotex and Northbrook, the Texas District Court granted the Edwards' request for permission to ignore the bankruptcy court stay order. The Fifth Circuit affirmed a similar attempted collateral attack by the same plaintiff's counsel was rejected by the Fourth Circuit when it reversed a Virginia District Court order that had granted permission to ignore the bankruptcy court stay order. The Fourth Circuit directed that the judgment creditor had to seek direct from the bankruptcy court in response to the improper collateral attack arguments raised by Salatex, the Edwards concede that the judgment of the Fifth Circuit must be reversed if the bankruptcy court had subject matter jurisdiction to issue its interim stay of the execution upon Salatex's supersedious bonds. That's the issue in this case. The statutory basis of the bankruptcy court's subject matter jurisdiction is 28 U.S.C. Section 1334B, which states that the district courts have jurisdiction of all civil proceedings arising under Title 11 or arising in or related to cases under Title 11. Mr. Warren, would you explain how the uh, proceeding on the bond will affect the bankruptcy estate? What are the ways in which it will? Uh, the money Northbrook has to pay are outside the bankruptcy estate, of course. So how will it affect the bankruptcy estate? Justice O'Connor, the way it affects the estate is, is that Celotex has a contractual relationship with Northbrook that was entered into as part of the posting of the supersedious bond. Mm -hmm. To secure that contractual relationship, Celotex, under a settlement agreement that resolved certain insurance coverage disputes with Northbrook, pledged that if Northbrook had to pay a bond, it could exercise rights of set-off against the funds that would otherwise be available to Celotex for payment to its creditors. So that although... Under so what was pledged are, are funds that otherwise would be in the general bankruptcy estate? That's correct, Your Honor. The, the, the money that Northbrook would pay to the Edwards is not subject to the property of the estate. The property pledged by Celotex to Northbrook is property of the estate, and it's that interconnection that creates the effect. Mr. Warren, uh, Mr. Warren the, the estate would get back that property pledged, I assume, only if there's some 
invalidity in, in the pledge. Is that is That, that is absolutely correct, what, Justice Scalia. Is there thought to be some invalidity in it? Yes, Your Honor. There are two bases upon which Salatex, for the benefit of his, its estate, is presently prosecuting adversary proceedings in the bankruptcy court to bring back into, to recover for the benefit of all of its creditors, those funds. The first premise is, is that the, the vast majority of the uh, Edwards' claim is for punitive damages. $245,000 of their claim is for punitive damages. Under the principles of equitable subordination codified in Section 510C of the Bankruptcy Code, Celotex is seeking, through the Bankruptcy Court, to subordinate those claims, which would then invalidate and bring back to the estate those funds that were transferred to Northbrook. The second uh, attack that's been made... Those, those claims seeking to bring back those... But the judgment has already been rendered with regard to those claims. That's correct. But it is a judgment for punitive awards, which under, uh, under normal bankruptcy practice would not be recoverable in lieu of the ability to compensate uh, com- you know, regular compensatory awards. The, the invalidity of the claim, the obligation of Northbrook on the judgment to the Edwards is predicated upon the affirmance by the Fifth Circuit of that judgment. The bankruptcy code expressly permits a basis upon which equitable subordination can occur so that one creditor cannot cannot recover for its benefit claims to the detriment of other creditors if the bankruptcy court finds appropriate grounds for, for that to occur. Mr. Warren, didn't you say what was infected was the collateral, not the judgment itself? That's correct, Your Honor. So what would be the basis for setting aside the transfer from Salatex to Northrop to secure the appeal bonds? Under the bankruptcy code, the transfer by Salatex to Northbrook was for the indirect benefit of the Edwards. Northbrook would not stand as a surety for Salatex but for the existence of adequate collateral. The bankruptcy code contemplates that transfers, both direct and indirect, can be avoided. And so well, are you attacking those as preferences or as fraudulent, or what, what's the basis for uh, attacking with, that transfer? Within the group of, of bonds, there are preferences, there are fraudulent transfers. The, the area of fraudulent transfers is what is applicable in connection with the Edwards claim because it is outside the 90-day preference period. You know, Salatex maintains that the transfer for the indirect benefit of the Edwards to Northbrook constituted a fraudulent conveyance, constructively Why fraudulent. Why was it for the indirect benefit of the Edwards? If the, if the, if the, if the bond had not been posted, the, the Edwards would have executed. That's correct, Your Honor. But the money would have been gone. How, so how does it benefit the Edwards? It seems to me it was entirely for the benefit of Salatex to enable it not to have to pay the judgment. That is the issue because the, the, in order to avoid the transfer, Salatex must establish insolvency at the time of the transfer or insolvency as a result of the transfer and a lack of reasonably equivalent value in exchange for the transfer. Salatex's financial condition, as is evidenced by the record in the bankruptcy court, which is not before and never was brought to the record that's before this court coming from the Fifth Circuit, demonstrates that the financial condition of Salatex at the time of these transfers of its assets to the surety was the same as at the time of the filing of its bankruptcy petition. So what the bankruptcy court has done in this case is it has continued a stay and maintain the status quo using its powers under Section 105. I'm not not concerned with the insolvent status. I I give you that. 
But what conceivable basis is there for arguing that it was not for the benefit of Celotex? Which is a necessary condition to say that, uh, that you know, that, that somehow this thing could be called back. Well, that would be the, that, that would be the defense that is being raised to the fraudulent conveyance claim. However, constructively fraudulent conveyances where there's a lack of reasonably equivalent value under the bankruptcy code can be called back. And, and Celotex did not benefit. Remember, Your Honor, Celotex will never receive any of these funds. It will only — this is a question of allocating limited resources among a few judgment creditors who have the benefit of supersedious bonds and hundreds of thousands of other judgment creditors whose claims arise from the exact same conduct. Well, please help me. I really, I really don't understand this. Isn't it the case that despite Celotex's insolvency, the judgment could have been executed upon? Yes, during — Absent the posting of the superseded bond. Of the bond. And, Your Honor, the, the issue that is, that is being litigated now is whether the forbearance that is affected by the supersedious bond is sufficient consideration to meet the reasonably equivalent consideration test in order to, in, in order to avoid a constructively fraudulent transfer. Mr. Warren, could you help me just with this one very preliminary question? It seems to me you're arguing the merits of the bankruptcy court's injunction. And I thought your basic position was that even if the injunction was erroneously entered, you should still prevail. Your Honor, it's absolutely correct. I'm merely responding to the inquiries from the court. I have a zeal for the merits of the bankruptcy court, but whether the bankruptcy court was right or wrong, the Fifth Circuit should have recognized that injunction. It seems to me that that the rest of your argument is we shouldn't be deciding that either. That is correct, Your Honor. We do not think that it is appropriate at this time for this court to deal with the, the merits, but only whether or not there was a, a relationship, you know, a related to jurisdiction issue. Did the bankruptcy court have some connection? Is there a nexus between what's occurring with these supersedious bonds and the estate? And, and your, your position is that if the Edwards thought the bankruptcy court was wrong, they should appeal to the 11th, the district court in the 11th Circuit, not take it up in the 5th Circuit. That's correct, Your Honor. The, the, the actual stay called for the parties to come first to the bankruptcy court to seek modification. If it was denied, they, they would have appellate rights to the 11th Circuit. On, on that point, I want to ask, um, was, was Northbrook uh, subject to the stay order? Did the stay order run against Northbrook? Yes, Your Honor. Specifically? Well, uh, in, the, in, in the mass tort context with 100,000 people, the stay order doesn't name anybody specifically. You know, that's the problem that you have logistically, practically with that type of proceeding. You know, the, the bankruptcy court was confronted at the early stages of the Celotex reorganization with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of appeals, not only these types of appeals, but Celotex was involved in insurance coverage disputes that were rather complex throughout the country, ADR proceedings, all types of administrative and judicial proceedings, so that the court entered this broad stay as a case management mechanism. Subsequently, the court has, has specified the applicability of the stay and has, and has considered efforts to modify the stay on the behalf of all of the bonded claimants. Counsel for the Edwards came to the court shortly after the, the bankruptcy case was filed, seeking to have the stay modified. And at that time, the court clarified, you know, that it, it's, its determination with respect to the status of the supersedious bonds and that it applied even when the appeal had been resolved without effect. So it comes down to which is the proper circuit ultimately to resolve this legal question of whether the, the appeal bond can be thrown back for the benefit of all the creditors. Is it just that's the, it's a question of whether it's the 11th Circuit or the 5th Circuit? 
that's going to make that ruling? Yes, Your Honor. We, we maintain that, that, the, that, that Congress, under the bankruptcy clause, empowered the, the district court in the Middle District of Florida having jurisdiction over the bankruptcy case filed by the Salatex Corporation to consider all matters that are related to that case. And would that uh, bar another circuit uh, from uh, re-examining this order if there were, uh, because there's colorable jurisdiction to, to issue it? So suppose the assertion was that there was uh, a, a patent jurisdictional defect. I, I don't think that assertion is made here, but suppose it were. Would, would, would that bar the Fifth Circuit from making this inquiry? No, Your Honor. We, we would agree that if there was a patent jurisdictional defect, then the, the, then the collateral attack rule would have an exception that would permit the Fifth Circuit to con- or the District Court in Texas to consider the matter. So is your position here that there is, there is no patent defect, that there is at, at least colorable jurisdiction and that that's the end of the matter? That's correct, Your Honor. Although, although I think that, that it has, I think, I think it's appropriate that the court that issues, I think it's good public policy that the court that issues an injunction that, that has colorable jurisdiction to enter that injunction should, you, you know, a party should respect and obey that injunction. Mr. Warren, at this point, mustn't we decide more than colorable? Because at least in the, in the uh, forum where the appeal bond was lodged, that's a mechanical procedure ordinarily. You called it, you said everyone agreed that in the Fifth Circuit there was a collateral attack on the bankruptcy court's stay order. But, in fact, what there was was a motion under the federal rules to realize the judgment against the appeal bond. It wasn't a separate proceeding collaterally attacking the stay in the bankruptcy court. So it's not like a little jurisdiction. The question is, does the bankruptcy court have subject matter jurisdiction? It either does or doesn't. I agree with that, Your Honor, that, that it, either the bankruptcy court had subject matter jurisdiction or the bankruptcy court did not have su- subject matter jurisdiction. And you're relying on 105 for that? No, Your Honor, we rely on 1334B for the subject matter jurisdiction of the bankruptcy court. So, so we have to make a detailed inquiry, uh, or the Fifth Circuit is entitled to make a detailed inquiry into the jurisdiction under 1334? Uh, Your Honor, I think that they were entitled to look at the jurisdiction that was asserted by the bankruptcy court. In finding that jurisdiction exists in the bankruptcy court, then they should have deferred to the stay that was entered by that court, unless and until it was modified on direct appeal. And you're saying that jurisdiction existed if there was a colorable claim that the property could come into the estate? And and, and this is where I find I have difficulty. You're saying it is a colorable claim, so long as the property used to belong to the bankrupt. Your Honor, it's I, more than just you're, property. You're saying that even without, without any uh, assertion of facts that would somehow demonstrate that, that there's a real possibility that the property could be included within the bankruptcy estate, even without that, it is still related to. Yes, Your Honor. The, the circuit court test with respect to 
to related to jurisdiction, which is a broad definition, of, uh, and, and Congress intended it to be broadly construed as part of the uniformity associated with bankruptcy matters, intended that the, that the bankruptcy court or the district court exercising bankruptcy jurisdiction have broad jurisdiction. It doesn't say might be related to. It says related to. And That's isn't it reasonable to interpret that to mean that there must be some facts that would give rise to a colorable claim that the money can be recovered by the bankrupt estate? Absolutely, Your Honor. But and what are they here? The, but the, well, the facts are that the transfers made by the Celtex Corporation were made at a time when it was insolvent. The facts are that, that, the, that the, at the time of, of these events, there was no consideration that was, that was increased to the, to the Celtex Juan, estate. I don't understand why that claim would be affected one way or another by whether uh, the bonding company pays out on the bond. Once, well... Isn't, I, I guess I have the same question. Isn't your claim broader than that? Even if there were no attack on these bonds, isn't it your position that the bankruptcy court would still have jurisdiction to enter an injunction against realizing on the bonds? Absolutely, Your Honor, because it, it protects the reorganization process. And that, and that is precisely why the, the collateral attack by the Fifth Circuit should not be conducted. But so the only, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say that the only the only jurisdictional uh, jurisdictionally relevant facts that that that, uh, that that you have to establish is that if in fact the Edwards is realized on the bond, there would be a consequence to the bankruptcy estate, i.e., the bonding company would then presumably realize on its collateral. That's all you have to show, isn't it? That's correct. Now, if if. Uh the uh, respondents had just executed on their judgment. That would not have been anything that would be covered by the stay, I take it, of the bankruptcy court. Well, Your Honor, in order for the, uh, in order for the respondents after the bankruptcy was in place to have executed against Northbrook, they would have had to have asserted some procedure uh, to comply with due process, and 65, Rule 65.1 provides that expedited summary-type procedure. And, and what, what the Edwardses sought here was permission from the district court to, to pursue their remedies against Northbrook. And, and of course, that... Well, what, what would have been the situation had there been no supersedious bond? Had, had there been no supersedious bond, then the bankruptcy would have implemented a stay that would have precluded the Edwards as have all other precluded any, any execution That's of correct, the judgment. But the bond was put up before and the there bond, was any bankruptcy. That's correct. The, the bond was then obtained uh, prior to the filing of bankruptcy to enable the respondents to go ahead and, and uh, obtain their money on the basis of the supersedious bond. That's correct, Your Honor. One of the issues in this case is the purpose of a supersedious bond. Is it to enhance the entitlement of the judgment creditor, or is it merely to preserve the judgment creditor's standpoint during the pendency of an appeal, if that appeal is without effect? Now, do you, do you say the test for whether it is related to the bankruptcy proceeding is the test employed by the Third Circuit in PACOR against Higgins? Yes, Your Honor. Whether it could have Do any all the, the courts of appeal apply that same test, or is there some diversity? Uh, Your Honor, the to, to the best of my knowledge, there's almost uniform 
uh, following of that particular test. And, and, and uh, you know, some, some circuits have adopted slightly different language, but it, it, all of them have recognized that if there could be any conceivable effect on the property of the debtor's estate or on the allocation of property among creditors, then there is related to jurisdiction. And the only conceivable effect here is if uh, Stellatex can establish that its transfer of the collateral to Northbrook was a fraudulent transfer. That would be one. The other would be if we can equitably subordinate the punitive award that the Edwards have recovered. Because the Edwards are seeking to have collected a punitive award against Celotex, while other creditors similarly situated will not be in a position to recover in full any of their compensatory claims. And so those are issues that the bankruptcy court, as part of its power to adjust debtor-creditor relationships, how, how will be How did the Edwards uh, get away from this? I mean, supposing that they had actually been, the, the bond had paid them off, uh, paid off their judgment. Could the bankruptcy court uh, still come after them? Well, there is a limit to the avoiding powers that a, that a debtor in possession will be able to exercise. How, however, there, you know, there are uh, remedies that, that up until such time as the statute of limitations The automatic stay in bankruptcy didn't occur until after that judgment was rendered. And is there any precedent for saying that somebody has a good judgment and the judgment is paid before the bankruptcy petition is filed, that yet the bankruptcy estate can go back and get that court judgment, can, re can set aside that court judgment? I don't From know. From a fraudulent transfer standpoint, no, Your Honor, because there would be a satisfaction of the judgment that would have occurred prior to the filing of the bankruptcy petition. From a preference standpoint, yes, there, the avoidance powers would enable a recovery with respect to a, a preferential transfer that was made within the 90-day period before bankruptcy. preferential transfer that consists of the payment of a judgment? you know any case where a payment of a judgment has been set aside? As a, as a preference, yes, Your Honor, because within the 90-day period, if the debtor is insolvent, if the payment affects a, 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 a benefit to the judgment creditor on behalf of an antecedent debt, meaning that it has to be not a contemporaneous exchange of value, but for an antecedent debt, then the Bankruptcy Code does provide the remedy for purposes of bringing and recovering Mr. that. Mr. Warren, let me, let me ask you this hypothetical. Suppose, suppose there's a piece of property that Celotex sold 10 years ago, and it sold it with a, with, with a, with a condition subsequent that if a certain, uh, certain event occurred, the property would revert to Celotex. There is now pending a lawsuit between two third parties who have nothing to do with Celotex or Northbrook or anybody else involving ownership of this property. Could the bankruptcy court uh, say that proceeding on the theory that since there was this reversionary provision, although there's no reason whatever to believe that the event which would produce the, the reversion has occurred? No reason whatever to believe that. Nonetheless, it is related to the bankruptcy. Could that be stayed? I believe so, Your Honor, because if there is a reversionary interest... So related to just means what? It means what? Somehow the, the bankrupt property is, is involved? could have a conceivable effect. Conceivable regardless of reality. I mean, you, you can make up facts. No, Your Honor, I think that, you know, I think that the Third Circuit in PACOR is a good example of a situation where the court defined conceivable effect but determined that there would be no enhancement of the estate, there was no harm to the estate, and therefore determined that the matter was not related to the bank. Well, that's one reason it couldn't have any conceivable effect. Another reason it couldn't have conceivable effect is that there is no way in the world 
that that the that the that the that the claim which would bring it back into the state could be vindicated. So that if I feel that way about whether there was there was consideration given for the for the posting of this security, whether not having to pay it immediately is adequate consideration, uh, I, I have I have brought this case parallel with the hypothetical I just gave you. Even if you disagree with the merits of the remedies or the available remedies, your know, court should respect stays and injunctions unless, entered by other patent, unless it is patently frivolous. Unless it's patently frivolous, unless there's no subject matter jurisdiction or unless there's no personal jurisdiction, which are not issues in this case. Why isn't it patently frivolous here if there is, was indeed equivalent value given for the posting of the uh, security? That's, that is the issue because forbearance is not quantifiable. And, and, the, and the evidence in the bankruptcy court, again, not in the record before the Fifth Circuit, is that the financial condition of Salatex was the same on the petition date as it was at the time of the transfers for the indirect benefit of the Edwards. And you're saying that the determina- that determination, uh, or the determination of your position simply cannot be made without a full trial on the merits, and therefore there's no opportunity to come under the frivolousness rule in, in this case. That is correct. And the Fourth Circuit recognized this, so it would be hard to say that it, w- it was completely frivolous when the Fourth Circuit in Willis recognized the exact same Salatex, the exact same factual circumstances. Does that, that position of yours turn in any respect on the fact that uh, Northbrook was itself bound by the order of the bankruptcy court? Yes, Your Honor. Northbrook's caught in the middle because they're, if they're bound by... If Northbrook had not been caught in the middle, would your position be different? Uh, you know, I don't. I, I have a hard time that is thinking to say, how they would say, not suppose be. Suppose Northbrook had not been bound by the order because there was no personal jurisdiction over it, or it had no knowledge of the order. I'm just trying to find out whether or not Northbrook's position before the bankruptcy court is the linchpin of your argument. Yes, sir. Northbrook is like a stakeholder. Northbrook is happy to, to compensate the Edwards. Northbrook is happy to give the funds back and to, it is to bound, the debtor. In its view, by the order that the bankruptcy court issued. That is correct, Your Honor. And it takes the position, or and you take the position on its behalf, that if that order is to be revised or amended or suspended as to Northbrook, it has to be the issuing court that does that. That is correct, Your Honor. That's precisely why this court should reverse the Fifth Circuit. Mr. Chief Justice, if there are no further questions. I do have one question about the status of the what you call the avoidance action, where there were motions for summary judgment pending as of last March. Have those been disposed of? No, Your Honor. They're still in, in litigation now. There are 229 parties to that litigation, and the, and the bankruptcy court has, under advisement, uh, summary judgments. The court just recently accepted a uh, new briefing based upon this court's decision in BFP. Uh, with respect to the fraudulent transfer issues. Thank you, Mr. Warren. Uh, Mr. Rosenthal, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, our position in this case is that the Fifth Circuit properly declined to follow the bankruptcy court's uh, stay order because the bankruptcy court lacked jurisdiction to stay proceedings by the Edwards against Northbrook. Uh, and I would respond to a comment that uh, Justice Kennedy made earlier. We are claiming a patent jurisdictional defect in the uh, stay order, which was issued five days after the bankruptcy. Uh, we are claiming that the bankruptcy court had no jurisdiction, and it is patent uh, that the court had no jurisdiction. Mr. Rosenthal, did you ever uh, 
uh, file a motion in the Florida bankruptcy court seeking relief from the injunction? Uh, I personally did on behalf of other clients, not on behalf of the Edwards. Uh, our firm represents uh, numerous clients who have um, uh, who had at the time of the bankruptcy appeals that were pending. Well, why didn't you follow that procedure? on behalf of these respondents? Because it was our opinion, Your Honor, that the bankruptcy court had patently no jurisdiction uh, to enjoin proceedings that did not involve the debtor at all and that were not directed against the debtor or against the debtor's property. Did, did it have no jurisdiction to do that as to Northbrook? Uh, it had no jurisdiction to do that as to Northbrook, yes, Your Honor. Um, do you deny, um, Mr. Rosenthal, that the, the, the claim that your, um, your opponent has made that if, in fact, the Edwards is realized on the bond, the bonding company is going to go against the collateral, the collateral is going to affect uh, the, the value of the bankruptcy estate? Do you, do you, is there a flaw in at, at least that sequence of reasoning? Uh, I, I, I can't dispute the fact that the bond has been collateralized, uh, but I... I I do believe that at the time of the affirmance of the judgment, Celotex lost whatever interest it had in the bond itself. Well, but that's not, that's not the argument. I mean, that's, that's a different argument. But the, the, the argument that's being made here is that the proceeding against the bond, if allowed to run its course and if successful, uh, as presumably it would be, uh, would affect the value of the bankruptcy estate. I, I do disagree with that assertion, well, Your Honor. Why do you do? What's the what's the the, the, the misstep? Is you, you admit that the the bond is is subject to collateral? Yes. And collateral is in the bankruptcy estate. Right. Okay. What's wrong with his reasoning? We're not we're not seeking the collateral. We're only seeking to enforce the independent obligation of Northbrook. Well, he is claiming that you are seeking the collateral. All he's claiming is that the uh, that the that the uh, proceeding is against the collateral will affect the value of the bankruptcy estate, and he is saying that, therefore, uh, the, in effect, the status of the collateral and any threat to it uh, is a matter which is related uh, to the Chapter 11 proceeding, and that's all that's necessary for jurisdiction under 1334B. Well, that's all that's necessary for jurisdiction under the PACOR test, which says any uh, proceeding uh, whose outcome could conceivably affect the bankruptcy estate. Well, this is, is more than uh, that. You're, you're quite right about your statement of the test, but isn't this a little bit stronger than, than merely conceivable? Well, I if think they go against the collateral, the collateral isn't going to be there, and, and they have priority. The collateral isn't going to be there in the general bankruptcy estate. Well, that's up to, that's up to Northbrook, Your Honor. I, I think that, that if Northbrook enforces that, well, I think maybe... Presumably, they... Northbrook is not going to open its veins and bleed to death. I mean, it's, it's, it's reasonable to suppose that Northbrook is going to want to realize on its collateral, isn't it? As between us... There's nothing, fri there's nothing frivolous about that assumption. No, there's not. But as between us bleeding to death and Northbrook bleeding to death, I think the bond the obligation that Northbrook entered into to us um, puts Northbrook in the shoes of bleeding. Well, that may be a good argument in front of the court that decides what should be done as to whether there should be an injunction or not, but I don't see that that goes to jurisdiction. The, the question on jurisdiction is, is it related? And of course it's related because it's going to affect the bankruptcy estate. At least that's his argument. Well, my argument is that there is a limit on that, on the relationship, on, on the uh, uh, degree to which uh, a bankruptcy court can exercise jurisdiction over uh, proceedings which are tangentially related to a bankruptcy. For example, in the Paycor case, the plaintiff sued a defendant. The defendant sued a co-defendant for indemnity. That co-defendant went into Chapter 11. Um, 
PAYCOR argued, well, this proceeding, the plaintiff's proceeding against us is a proceeding related to the bankruptcy of the co-defendant because the, the, if the plaintiff prevails, that will create a claim of indemnity from us against the co-defendant, and therefore um, it's related to a bankruptcy. And under that protest, I'm sorry. Isn't it a a little abstract to say this, these claims are not related to the bankruptcy? Isn't it, in fact, the case that these personal injury claims are what drove Celotex and companies similarly situated into bankruptcy? So it's quite, you can, I can understand the abstract categorization that you're making. And is it not possible that if Celotex didn't think it had a shot at defeating the punitive um, recoveries, it might have gone into bankruptcy earlier when faced with these hundreds of claims? Um, I, I think the question implicates two issues. One is the possible success of the avoidance action, and the, and the other is just the effect on the bankruptcy. And I think that, um, that the, the basis for the judgment really has nothing to do with our claim against Northbrook. Our claim is on Northbrook's claim to us. The very purpose of the bond is to ensure that that satisfaction of the judgment is unrelated to the financial condition of the debtor. That, that's, that's built into the entire concept. So I, I think it's a good argument on the merits of whether there should be an injunction, but I don't see why it is, it is uh, significant with respect to jurisdiction. Well, if the test for jurisdiction is related to, then I think it, it does certainly apply. It's not, you don't take a merits. I, I guess what I'm hearing from you is a kind of a merits first approach to jurisdiction. If you lose on the merits, there's no jurisdiction. But the words related to in a jurisdictional statute have generally been given a, a very broad meaning. I, I don't deny that, but I do believe there is a limit, and I do believe that that crosses that limit, and I think that the underlying purpose of a supersedious bond or transactions like it, like the letters of credit on which uh, uh, the uh, New York Clearinghouse, the Banks of New York, filed the, an amicus brief saying that the assertion, not just the exercise, uh, not just the, the wielding of power, but the actual assertion of jurisdiction, that very ability threatens the um, viability of those kind of financial transactions. And I think that to, to suggest, to define related to as anything that could affect, however indirectly, a bankruptcy would basically give the bankruptcy courts infinite jurisdiction. But you, I don't you, you can argue in the bankruptcy court that the stay shouldn't have issued. You can appeal to the district court or the court of appeals that supervises the bankruptcy court. Uh, I mean, it's not as if if the bankruptcy court makes a wrong decision, you're just permanently stuck with it. Well, that's true. But I think, again, to require someone who has, an, uh, who has uh, a right on, a, on an independent obligation to go and litigate in the bankruptcy court would undermine the very purpose of well, that. Congress shouldn't have worded it as related to. I mean, the, the, you know, I, I think your, your argument is basically you don't like the breadth of jurisdiction conveyed, conferred by Congress. Well, I don't think the, the, that the Congress's jurisdiction has been interpreted that broadly. I think that, um, again, the Paco case, there was a relationship with the bankruptcy, a tangential one, but, but the court held there was no jurisdiction in that case, and that's under the broadest test that's been articulated. In the uh, M-Court case decided by this court, um, one of the alternative grounds for the holding was that the, the, um, the bankruptcy court's attempt to stay administrative proceedings was unlikely to impair the bankruptcy court's exclusive jurisdiction over the property of the estate. And I suggest that's exactly the same situation here. Northbrook's actions 
may affect the property of the estate, although I even doubt that because I think the likelihood of avoiding the, the uh, transfer is is infinitesimal, and I think that the avoidance claim is protectual. But that's Northbrook versus Celotex. Our claim against Northbrook does not affect the, uh, the debtor's estate any more than the plaintiff's claim against Paycor in the Paycor case. But non- nonetheless, if, Nor- if Northbrook goes against Celotex as a result of your collecting on the bond because of the collateral that Celotex had, that could diminish the Celotex bankruptcy estate, could it not? Yes, and that action could be stayed, as the bankruptcy court recognized in his own opinion. Um, I, I, again, this, the purpose of the supersedious bond is risk allocation. It is, it, and, and the court used language like this, was shifting the battleground, taking the risk of Celotex's future insolvency off us and putting it onto Northbrook. And if... Mr. Rosenthal, what would have happened if, after the district court judgment and the appeal bond is put up, and while the appeal is pending, the Chapter 11 had been filed, what would have been the situation of the Edwards then? Well, the Edwards would be saved by the automatic stay. Um, the, the circuit courts are uniform on that, and we have not challenged that, because the proceeding is against Celotex. As long as the matter is an appeal, the proceeding is against Celotex, not the bond company. The difference in this case was the appeal was decided, the case was over, and the Edwards had a right to execution and had it had a basically a retro, retroactive right to collect on the judgment, retroactive to when they got the judgment, which was a year and a half before the bankruptcy, and a, and a year and a half ago the bond was posted at that time as well. So, a rather, a rather elementary question. I just confess my ignorance about some of this. Uh, your clients are not parties to the injunction, is that right? Uh, not formal parties, no, Your Honor. Uh, is it arguable that they're in contempt of court in, uh, in Tampa? Yes. Have any contempt proceedings been brought against them? No. How about contempt proceedings against uh, the bonding company? No. The bond company has resisted payment. What is the procedure proceeding there which is testing the validity of the injunction as applied to them? Well, uh, um, if any. Several claimants um, who argue a right to their bonds have filed a motion to lift the stay um, to execute on their bonds, and they did this... Uh, I, I can't say when. I believe it's sometime in 1992. The bankruptcy court um, denied the motions to lift the stay, um, which is reported in the joint appendix, and uh, that I believe an appeal has been taken from that order denying uh, the motion to stay, and it is still pending two years later in the district court. Thank you. Um, and again, I think that illustrates, again, to embroil us who, who should be guaranteed the right of immediate access and a ma- right of immediate satisfaction of the bond and the right to the mechanisms provided in the federal rules for enforcement of a bond um, would be denied if the response is go to the bankruptcy court and litigate in the bankruptcy court. That, that, but that I gather you would agree that action. if the injunction is ultimately upheld, and say the Fifth Circuit decision stands too, don't you run some risk of being held in contempt of court ultimately? and punished for that? Yes, Your Honor, we do. And you're willing to take that risk, in effect? Yes. And, uh, again, I think that that fact um, illustrates uh, or, or refutes the claim that attacks such as these will proliferate or affirmance of the Fifth Circuit's uh, decision will encourage uh, persons to make these kind of, of attacks on bankruptcy Mr. Rosenthal, isn't that unseemly in a federal system? This should go be settled in one place or another, and then to have the risk of contempt because the Edwards are resisting the authority of the, the, 
the courts within the 11th Circuit uh, to, to say that what has happened in the Fifth Circuit is okay, but that can be checked later on to contempt proceedings for the smooth functioning of a federal system, shouldn't it be clear that either you're right or Mr. Warren is right about the authority of the courts within the Eleventh Circuit? In most circumstances, yes, Your Honor, it would be. In a case of what we believe to be patent uh, excursion beyond jurisdictional limits, we say that this procedure is appropriate, that the checks on the ability or, or, and, and the restraints on the willingness of people to, to make these kind of parties, to make these kind of collateral attacks, are the availability of contempt proceedings and the district court and, and Fifth Circuit that receives the challenge. They were fully aware of the bankruptcy court's say order at the time that, um, uh, that this issue was litigated. The District Court and the Fifth Circuit both, we, we didn't hide it. We said the Bankruptcy Court has uh, attempted to stay execution, but we don't believe that, that uh, it has jurisdiction to do this. And, and that was litigated. And both the District Court and the Fifth Circuit said, you are entitled to proceed on the supersedious bond. Um, to do otherwise would undermine the very purpose of the transaction. Would you agree that if the Fifth Circuit was wrong about the jurisdiction of the Bankruptcy Court, however wrong the Bankruptcy Court may have been on the merits of granting the state, if they were wrong about the jurisdiction, the authority of the Bankruptcy Court to issue a state that would include all the personal injury people who already had judgments, then this gets sorted out in the Eleventh Circuit and not in the Fifth Circuit. The question is, was there authority in the bankruptcy court in Florida, in the district court in Florida? And, and my answer to that would be no. And um, again, I, I, I'm sure that if we thought that it was a close question, we wouldn't have pursued this challenge. Um, but I don't believe it is a close question. Um, I don't believe that there is a risk of the 11th Circuit finding jurisdiction uh, of any kind uh, in the bankruptcy court to stay these kind of unrelated Mr. proceedings. Mr. Warren, if I hear you correctly, you are not arguing that there is no possibility, no realistic possibility, no argument that, North, that Northbrook cannot be prevented from uh, uh, executing upon the collateral. You, you acknowledge that there may be a basis uh, uh, after you collect from Northbrook for saying that Northbrook has no right to... to uh, uh, I, I think that that, that claim could be made. Um, I think that... At you the, haven't made it. No, I have not. As Again, our position is we're unrelated to that issue. That, that you, you just argue on the basis of lack of relationship, not the fact that there may not be some uh, plausible basis for thinking that Northbrook can't use the collateral. Yes, I think that, that at the time of the... I, I actually don't think that Celotex has a right to the collateral. Um, but, but would you not agree that, at least as a matter of jurisdiction, the bankruptcy court would at least have jurisdiction to enjoin Northbrook from trying to realize on the collateral? Yes. So, yeah. Yes, I do. And I then think Northrop would be under conflicting obligations. No, the fifth because they can, pay the, they can pay the judgment without and, and lose on both courts. Northbrook, th that's true. Yeah. Northbrook, um, it, Northbrook issued the bond. They assumed that obligation to us. They took the risk. And, um, and pay, I, I, am I wrong in, in thinking that the Edwards have realized 
on the appeal bond that you've gotten paid or you haven't? We have not, Your Honor. We have not received the funds on that. But We've under not- the Fifth Circuit judgment, you could. Yes, we're entitled to. So we- you – what – why are you not – this is some voluntary understanding? Yes, it is a voluntary understanding on our part. Um, Celotex has agreed to um, uh, not pursue contempt um, proceedings against if us. If we don't collect. If we don't collect. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Rosenthal, on rehearing, uh, the uh, Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, in its, its amendment to the opinion, its last couple sentences say – uh, thus, we have not held that the bankruptcy court in Florida was necessarily wrong. We have only concluded that the district court, over which we do have appellate jurisdiction, was right. Uh, do you defend that analysis of the matter? No, I don't, Your Honor. Uh, that language, uh, uh, I think, uh, to give my own interpretation to it, it is we're not reversing an order of a, of a court in another circuit over which we don't have jurisdiction. Um, we're just uh, affirming a decision below because I think it, that language is in response to uh, statements made in the petition for rehearing that um, you're effectively reversing an order in another circuit, and, and I think that was to, to respond to that. But I do think that the bankruptcy court's order, to the extent that it assumed that there was jurisdiction to do this, was necessarily wrong. If the bankruptcy court was right in assuming jurisdiction over the bond, then I, I don't think that the Fifth Circuit could, uh, could have ruled the way it did. It's accurate enough to say that the Fifth Circuit is not saying that the bankruptcy court was wrong. I agree with that, Your Honor. It's only saying that, uh, that the Texas court was right. Yes, and I, I don't think that language really adds to the analysis. Let him who can read conclude that, therefore, the, uh, uh, the other court was wrong. Yes, th- that's correct, and, and I think that, again, the Fifth Circuit was well aware of the effect of its order, effect of the um, bankruptcy, uh, uh, or aware that its order did conflict with the bankruptcy court's order and was delicate in its language, saying, no, you don't have the power to do this. Um, I do want to emphasize that to the extent that the order could be uh, connected in any way with the adversary proceedings, to the extent that Celotex has a uh, uh, or claims an interest in the property because of the adversary proceeding, we've said in our brief that we think that that would be patently frivolous. Uh, I would reiterate that and add that the bankruptcy, to the extent that the order um, staying enforcement on bonds generally um, is an injunctive order. It did not comply with the requirements of Rule 65. Um, there's no showing of a likelihood of success uh, in the avoidance action, and Celotex did not even attempt to does, show does a likelihood Does that go to jurisdiction? I mean, supposing a court can, with conceded jurisdiction, say a federal court with diversity jurisdiction under the statute, issues an injunction which does not comply with Rule 65, and that judgment simply becomes final uh, without any appeal. Could the uh, object of the, the person who is the constrained by the injunction challenge that collaterally because it violated Rule 65? I think that, it could, that the person could challenge it if it does makes no pretense to obey the Rule 65, and this does not. Well, in, in other words, you're, you're, you're saying that if a court does not comply with Rule 65, that deprives it of jurisdiction? If the, no, no, Your Honor. That would be an extraordinary departure from our cases. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if an order that, uh, that um, I think they're two different concepts. Well, why don't you answer my question? 
I think that, that no, an order under Rule 65 that's not properly entered under Rule 65 um, doesn't defeat the Court's own jurisdiction, but, to the, but, but that it does make the order uh, unenforceable for another reason, and that is that it's patently frivolous with no pretense of validity, another exception to the collateral attack. So supposing the bankruptcy court has before it a controversy that is not at all patently frivolous. That is, it conceitedly relates to the bankruptcy and issues an injunction which doesn't comply with Rule 65. Does that mean it can't rely on the subject matter of the controversy before it to sustain jurisdiction just because the injunction didn't comply with Rule 65? No, that, it's a different issue than the jurisdictional issue. It's a different defect with the order, and that's, that's all I'm saying. There are two defects with the order. To the extent that it's issued under the bankruptcy court's general jurisdiction to supervise a bankruptcy um, and, and deal with product uh, problems related to, however, tangentially the bankruptcy state, there's no jurisdiction to do that. To the extent that it's related or attempted to be related, and I'm not even sure if it's argued to be related, specifically to the adversary proceeding, um, then it is it, to, to not comply with the, with the uh, injunction rule is, uh, is patently frivolous and has no pretext well, but, to validity. Uh, don't our cases say that if, uh, if an injunction is issued in violation of Rule 65, you, you, you don't collaterally attack it. You go back to the court that issued the injunction and say, this was wrong because you didn't comply with Rule 65. Yes, that, that's true, with the exceptions uh, listed. That is, lack of jurisdiction or no uh, conceivable, um, uh, patently frivolous with no well, pretense are you, are you, You're splitting those apart. You're saying one is... Uh, no jurisdiction. The other is, I would say, patently frivolous. Yes, they they are distinct uh, bases for attacking uh, orders of any kind, injunctive or otherwise. Well, in other words, an order that is patently frivolous, in your view, and whatever you haven't defined that, could be collaterally attacked, even though the court which entered that order unquestionably had jurisdiction. That's an extraordinary doctrine. But but it is a doctrine of this court. It's well, one that's well, what, what, what case is it based on? Walker versus City of Birmingham recognizes that as an exception um, to the uh, effect of injunctive orders. You're, you're saying, I take it, that, that a, a bankruptcy court that unquestionably has jurisdiction over the parties before it does not have to be obeyed by the district court who is uh, entertaining the case of United States versus Nixon, should that court happen to issue a, uh, an injunction relating to that case which has no conceivable relationship, even though the court has jurisdiction over the parties. Yes, if I understand the, the hypothetical, I think, yes. I'm not trying to trick you. <laughs> what, what, what I don't understand about your position, though, is this. If, if it had been your contention that there is no way in which uh, Northrop would not be entitled to retain the collateral after it pays the... Uh, uh, after it pays the bond, uh, then, then, then I, I might go along with you, but, but, but you, you are not making that argument. You, you are perfectly willing to entertain the possibility that Northrop will pay the bond and then, and then get, uh, 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 get uh, left high and dry at the other end of the transaction by, uh, by not being able to uh, retain its collateral. It seems to me that the whole purpose of this provision that enables the bankruptcy court to have jurisdiction over all proceedings related to cases is to prevent just that kind of thing from happening, to prevent inconsistent uh, determinations by courts with respect to the same matter. Perhaps I didn't understand your earlier hypothetical as well as I should have. The, um, 
if you were asking, does Northbrook have a right to retain the collateral, I think the answer to that is clearly yes, Celotex has lost its property interest in that. If your question is, does the retention of the collateral that Celotex posted affect Celotex's estate, I think, yes, this is property that — Is the answer clearly yes, if the transfer, the collateral was transferred within the preference period, or it could be attacked as fraudulent of other creditors? I don't understand why that's so clear. The, the, the transfer of the collateral, which I take it was, these are claims that Celotex had against its own insurer. Yes. That was what the collateral was. And if the transfer either occurred within the preference period or could otherwise be, char- could be characterized as fraudulent, then why isn't that a valid claim? That, that is true. That, that certainly isn't the situation here. And that's why I think Northbrook — I thought Mr. Warren said that's exactly what the situation was, that they were attacking the transfer from Celotex to the insurer as either preferential or fraudulent. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. That is, they are, they are attacking that. That, that attack has uh, no validity whatsoever. Um, this bond was posted well in excess of the, of the uh, uh, fraudulent tra- — I mean, sorry, the uh, preference period — well in excess of the statutory period for voiding constructively fraudulent transfers under Section 548, and was, was done for purposes of satisfying or securing an antecedent debt, which is expressly said to be um, uh, not a fraudulent transfer. I asked you earlier whether you were making any of those arguments, that, that in fact there's no colorable basis for saying that, uh, that Northrop doesn't uh, own this collateral. And you said, no, that's not the argument you're making? No, no, Your Honor. I think that, I, as I understood your question, it was, does the retention of collateral affect Celotex? Because we were dealing with the, juris- the broad jurisdictional question under 1334B. And I said, yes, I think the retention of collateral affects Celotex certainly more directly than our claim against Northbrook. But no, I do not think the transfer could colorably be attacked. I think it, it, it defies... Does Northbrook agree with you? This is a stakeholder that says... I don't care who gets paid. I don't want to have to pay twice. So we're hearing from you to say that they don't, they don't have any problem in Northbrook. My understanding of Northbrook's position is they've, they've opposed the, uh, they've defended the uh, avoidance action in Florida and, in fact, characterized uh, the bankruptcy court's injunction or stay order in this case as novel, which I think is strong language from... It's quite different from saying they haven't got a colorable basis for the claim that there is no, in the bankruptcy court, there's no colorable basis to set aside the uh, transfer to, to the insurer. Yes, but, but I would, Your Honor. I, I say that there is no colorable basis to say that a party uh, a year before or more than a year before a bankruptcy that pays a debt um, pays a judgment or secures a judgment through a supersedious bond has committed or, or performed a fraudulent transfer is an Alice in Wonderland concept. And I, I submit that it's absolutely not colorable. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Rosenthal. Uh, Mr. Warren, you have two minutes remaining. As this Court has recognized, bankruptcies do strange things. This case does not present an Alice in Wonderland. It is involving uh, a substantial amount of money, a substantial amount of issues. What the bankruptcy court has done has preserved the status quo. The heart of our appeal and the reason why the Fifth Circuit's decision should be reversed is it impairs the orderly judicial administration. 
Justice It hasn't preserved the status quo. The status quo is that everything, that, that this money was gone. The status quo is that once this, this security was posted, the case was lost on appeal, that money was gone. And, and, uh, and uh, it seems to me it's, it's saying, no, the money isn't gone. I don't call that retaining the status quo. Well, Your Honor, it, it maintains the status quo in the sense that the, the funds are still available. The obligation of Northbrook as a surety is still available. The, the rights and entitlements and the avoidance powers as they exist are still available with respect to the estate. And the passage of time that has occurred, the bankruptcy court has provided adequate protection to ensure that segregated funds exist for the benefit of, in, of any impairment that occurs as a result of the delays. And the collateral is not gone. And the collateral is not gone because the bankruptcy court has ordered the sureties to deposit those funds. So consequently, we have issues... It's gone unless there's some colorable basis for getting it back. That is correct, Your Honor. And, and, and there's two colorable bases that are, that are being litigated now that exist. The constructively fraudulent transfer, which is a four-year statute of limitations under Florida law, which has been established as being the law controlling this transfer. So it's within the statute of limitations. No question that Salatex was insolvent at the time it transferred the assets to Northbrook. There's no question that the transfer was for the indirect benefit of the Edwards. No question about that. The only issue is whether or not there was a, a reasonably equivalent exchange of value, meaning that the forbearance of the Thank Edwards. Thank you, Mr. Warren. Thank Your you, Your time has expired. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.